0: When does bad news become good news? Uh, We are often accustomed to receiving bad news throughout the day, week, and month. Bad news comes to us in various forms. Through media, cable news networks, the sky is falling. There you go, you don't have to watch it anymore. Through medical professionals. You have this disease. This is wrong with you. Perhaps through family. I'm leaving you. Through children. I don't believe. In your God. Through work. We've had to make some cutbacks. So unfortunately, we're going to have to lay you off. But when do these bad reports actually become good? Take, for example, the news you might receive through a medical professional. You have cancer. But it's treatable. Sometimes with really, really bad news, like you have cancer, comes the sort of sweet, encouraging news, but we can treat it. In fact, sometimes we can't truly appreciate the good news unless we've been told the bad news. Most of us this morning, if we've never battled something like cancer, really don't have a feeling sense of hearing from a doctor, it's treatable. Many of us haven't faced some terminal illness where we've received the, the good news, but you won't die. Sometimes, in order for good news, Well, to be good, there has to be some bad news that goes along with it. And friends, in our passage this morning, Paul gives us some really bad news. Paul gives us a tremendously bad report on the human race. Terrible news. We are dead. But, but comes with this bad news, some tremendously good news. This bad news is central to the Christian faith. Christians for 2,000 years have been honest about themselves in reporting this really bad news. We've never sought to clean up This bad news, you know, kind of spin the story a little bit to make ourselves look better. No, faithful Christians over the centuries have continually told this bad news about ourselves, that we are dead in our sin. And this morning, we want to spend some time thinking together with God's word about how really, how bad we really are. And I know this isn't really popular in Christian circles today. Sadly, you turn on Christian radio and it's all positive, positive, positive and not negative, negative, negative. Well, friends, that positive news really is meaningless apart from this bad news we're going to talk about today. And so if you're accustomed in your Christianity, only to hear good news all the time? Well, let me wake you up and sit you up as we consider what the Bible has to say about you and me. And so this morning, the temptation is going to be for you in the pew to look out the window and say, No, 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 it's out there, it's not in here. And Paul's going to Get your gaze back on the Word. And he's going to say, no, no, the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't here. But then you'll equally perhaps be tempted to say, oh, Pastor, I know how evil I am. I know how deep my sin runs. And you might be tempted this morning to despair, to discouragement. And so I hope to offer you a word of hope. That with this bad news comes some tremendously good, good news. Well, Paul began this letter of Ephesians with praise to the triune God. Praising Father, Son, and Spirit for the work of redemption. And he has moved from giving praise to God to then giving thanksgiving and prayer. He prayed that the church in Ephesus would know God better. That they would know and grasp the rich blessings that they have in Christ. He wanted them to know also the greatness of God's power. Uh, He did not want them to lose sight of how awesome and mighty God is. He prayed that they would be able to grasp the greatness of God's power displayed Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to to contemplate and think. That's what we we ended with last week. And as you look at your Bible. You'll see that we're beginning a new chapter. And oftentimes, it's deceiving. You see new heading and a new chapter. You think, oh Paul's kind of moved on. He's going on to something else now. He's, He's done with the prayer. And that would be terribly wrong for us to think that. If you look at your Bibles at verse 1, uh, there's the word and there. There's a conjunction, uh, meaning that Paul isn't done talking about the greatness of God's power. Now, the first example that Paul gives of God's great power is the resurrection of Christ. But then in verses 1 through 10, Paul goes on to say, not only is God's power displayed tremendously through the resurrection of Christ, but God's power was also made evident when he raised dead sinners to life. If you have your Bibles open, look there at verse 5 in chapter 2. You'll see this is the main uh, exhortation or the main word that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. God made us alive together with Christ. That's the main idea of the text, that while we were dead, God was able to create life where there was spiritual death. And so this week, what we're going to do is sort of take some time over the next three weeks and consider this passage. But I just want to see the sweeping view really quickly of Ephesians. I want you to kind of set this verse within the context of this letter. My hope, though we're going kind of verse by verse, that you get a sense of the overarching sweep of the book. And so Paul's praying that they would know the greatness of God in the resurrection of Christ. He prays that they would know the greatness of God, the power of God in their own lives. He would go on in chapter 2 verses 11 through the end of chapter 2 to put on display and say God's power is not only at work in you individually, but also corporately, uniting you together in one body. It takes tremendous power to break down decades and centuries of racial division. And as we'll see in chapter 3, that God's power is put on display through the local church. That it's, it's in the church that, and the gathering together of the saints each week that God's power is put on display so that the world and that the powers and principalities in the heavenly places would look in each Lord's day as we gather together. And so right now, right now, angels are looking in and seeing something that they have never seen before. Something that far outweighs creation. And the beauty and splendor of creation. Something that God is doing, a work, a mystery. And that's the gospel. And then Paul will go on in the end of chapter 3 to pray in finality that they would know that, know that, that whatever they ask or think, God is able to do. Paul wants us to know this morning God's power. And he will argue at length through this book to argue for his power. And so we're going to consider today that we are dead in sin. Next week, alive in Christ. And then in the third week of this section, for the purpose of good works. That you've been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is good works. Well, friends, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you haven't already. I trust that you have. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you Well, Paul's point could be summarized in this way. Christians were once, like the rest of humanity, morally and spiritually dead. And Paul's point here is one of reminder. Christians are to remember that the power of God has already been wonderfully displayed in their lives when he raised us from our spiritual death. Paul's overarching point is that we would know the power of God already made evident on us by the fact that he breathed life in, into our dead souls. In other words, our, really our time here this morning is really not only to get our, to know ourselves better, but to get to know God better. And so Paul gives us here in verses one through three, three reminders. So I want to remind you, if you will, of three, three things this morning. First, remember you were once a spiritual corpse. Second, remember you were once a prisoner to the world the devil and the flesh. And third reminder. Remember you were once an object of God's wrath. You were once an object of God's wrath. This is the three reminders we want to consider this morning. First, remember you, you and I were once a spiritual Corpse. Look at verse 1. And you, that you there is plural, y'all, right? And y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, y'all, once walked. But Paul begins by way of a summary statement. Paul's statement serves as a decisive and comprehensive assessment of of our condition apart from God. Friends, you cannot get more clear than Paul's statement here. It's short, it's sweet, and easy to remember. You were dead. You were dead. Paul doesn't mean that they were physically dead. Uh, Paul's not speaking to a group of resurrected people. No, no. Paul's point here is that they weren't going to die like, you know, that they had a death sentence put upon them. Though both of those are true. Our physical death is a result of our sin. Though wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. But the point Paul makes here is that they were spiritually and morally deficient. That there was nothing in them that was praise worthy. Now you'll be helped, I think, as we're thinking about this conversation, not to uh, get confused in what we're speaking about here this morning. The reason why I wanted you to read together the statement of faith on man, uh, because it helpfully does two things. First, it clarifies that all humanity, every human race, is worthy of honor and dignity because they're created in the image of God. And so all of us this morning, though we are sinners, are still worthy of honor and dignity because we are created in his image. But you'll notice also, secondly, in that statement, it makes clear that though we're created in his image and worthy of dignity and honor, that our humanity has been marred so deeply that all of our actions are motivated in some way by Sin. Therefore, as a result of our depravity, uh, what theologians might label as our total depravity, in other words, that we are not a little bit dead, we're all the way dead, right? Um, You've ever been to a funeral? um, Dead means dead, right? Um, You wouldn't be at the funeral there if that person was half dead. No, no, they're dead. And so as a result of our deadness, we are unable to apprehend a God. Uh, we are unable to find our way to God. And no more than that dead individual in the casket is able to get out of the casket and walk. But this same word that Paul uses here, Jesus uses uh, when he tells the story of the prodigal son. And I, I just think that it's a helpful illustration a story that is well known to many of us, the story of the prodigal son. Even non-Christians know this story. In Luke 15, Jesus tells his disciples a parable about a son of a rich man. And this son takes his inheritance and goes and lives a licentious life, really just wasting his life in his lust of the flesh. And you'll recall when he returned home There was a great celebration. The the father threw him a big feast. What was lost was found. That's the point of the story. What was lost was found. And you'll be reminded what the father said. He said, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And and this serves as an illustration for... Really, who we are before Christ. We are dead. Morally and spiritually dead. But then there was change. He was made alive, and we were made alive. Before Christ, you and I were morally and spiritually bankrupt. Now, Paul's point isn't that we were as bad as we could be. The Bible's clear that... Now, we can be really bad, but but many of us aren't as bad as we we really could be. But I want you to notice here what he says. Notice why we were dead. Look there at verse 2 again. We were dead in what? In the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But Paul uses that word walk there to really mean that our lives were characterized by Sinful living. Now the word trespass means a willful rebellion against the command of God. That we willfully rebelled against God. And we often use that helpful definition of sin. That sin is living life our own way rather than God's way. And all that we do. And all that we say and all of our actions. They are infected by our sin. And Fundamentally when we Sin. We are rebelling against God. Now, we might sin by hurting another person. We might use words and, and harm them. We might physically harm another person. But all of that, the Bible says, is ultimately an act of rebellion against God. This is what Paul says we're forgiven of our trespasses and our sins. And I want you to notice also what Paul says in this verse. If you pay attention to the details, it's helpful. Look again at verse 2, or verse 1. And you, let me emphasize there, were dead in your trespasses, in which you once walked. Now, Paul didn't have to say that twice, but, but he wants to be clear. That this indictment is a result of your own actions. No one has made you sin. No one forced you to it. You're not going to go before God and say, you know, my friend made me do it. Or it's my parents' fault. No, it's yours. Sin clings to you because it's yours. It's yours. Our spiritual death is universal, Paul will say, throughout all of humanity. This is what we heard earlier reflected in Romans 3, which was a a quote from the Old Testament Psalms. The psalmist says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. He goes on to say that they are all corrupt. They all do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now again, that doesn't mean that we can't do good. But it does mean that at the end of the day, We are sinners. And friends, this morning, if you've gathered with us in this room, there is only one group of people broken into two parties. All of us are sinners this morning. Everyone in this room is a sinner. This is the Bible's indictment of us. But there are two groups of sinners in this world there are repentant sinners. And unrepentant sinners. There are those who are repentant. And repentance means fundamentally. To be honest. And agree with God in this assessment. Repentance begins with confession. God I agree with this statement. I know I am dead apart from you. One of the sh- most striking pictures of our spiritual deadness is in Ezekiel thirty-seven. God takes Ezekiel out to this valley filled with dry bones. With uh, it looks as if a massive army was just poof, atomic bomb was dropped on it, and throughout the valley laid not rotting corpses. Not men half dead, but bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry, right? (laughs) There was no life in them. We're not going to put them back together like a puzzle, And no more could these bones put themselves back together again. Can you and I put ourselves spiritually back together again? Dead means dead. Universally and completely unable to save. Our inability to save ourselves is inherent in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must have someone else act upon us. This is why Paul will argue in a, in a few verses later that we are saved by grace and not by works. Because we are spiritually dead. We are corpses rotting. And brothers and sisters, as we reflect on this, on who we were before Christ, it is, to, it is meant to induce Humility in us. We, of all people, knowing who we really are, should be the most humble people. We should never in pride think that we are better off. That we somehow have attained something greater and better than the rest of humanity. Oh no, brothers and sisters. No more than those bones could live. Could you have found your way to Jesus? No more than Jesus could call. Lazarus from the dead. To come and follow him. Can we. Apart from the call. Of Christ. On our own. Lives. Paul's point I think is to give us hope. To remind us. Of how far we've come. By the power. Of God. If we truly believe this, we have hope. And I I just want to note note a a sense of contrast here that Paul sets up. Look again at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. This is who you were. Now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should do what walk in them in these good works this is who we are now a new creation no longer dead but brought to life this is a powerfully a powerful excuse me display of God's ability to take rebels and transform them into sons of God and brothers and sisters this is the hope That resides in us. That if he is able to deliver us from our dead state spiritually. Well friends he is able to deliver us from any temptation and trial that is before us. Paul reminds us that we were once spiritual corpses. Dead in our sin. We needed God to act. If we were to be delivered from our spiritual death. Well Paul goes on in verses 2 and 3. To remind us secondly. He says, remember, you were once a prisoner to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Look at what he says there in verse 2. That we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were, as one pastor helpfully articulated, we were prisoners held by three guards. Guard number one, the world. Guard number two, the devil. And guard number three, our own flesh. Paul's point. Those are some really big and strong guards. And you aren't able to get free from them apart from the power of God. First, he says that we were a prisoner to the world. The prison, we, were, we were held as a prisoner of the world. We used to follow the world. It's funny to think that we're often innovators in our lives. We're not innovating anything. We're just doing what the world does. And sadly, many of us, even as Christians, don't really r- realize and recognize how much of the world is still in us. As part of our sanctification is, is stop doing dumb things the way the world does them, and growing in grace and doing it the way the heavenly kingdom does it. Well, the, the Bible is, is so clear, though, for us that, that at the end of the day, all of us are followers of something. Of someone. We are either followers of Jesus. Or we are followers of this world. And as sinners. We are like sponges. We soak up. This world. We soak up the attitudes. Habits. And lifestyles of this world. And we take them. Embrace them as our end. Take any one of us. Whether it be in our current American culture or some other culture. You plant us in that culture and before long we'll start acting just like the world. The world is all the systems that are at work to rebel against God. This world and all of its systems and all of its power structures are against God. Even our own culture and frankly no culture in this world, is immune to the infectious nature of sin. There there has never been a culture that has not been infected by sin. This is what John helpfully tells us in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I just you can't get a more helpful, I think, clear picture of what the world is. Sensual, lustful, and prideful. And brothers and sisters, I mean, if you've been paying attention to the news this week, we've saw this played out so clearly with, with this whole scheme and scam with college admissions. The rich and powerful doing what the rich and powerful do, right? Trying to buy their way into greater wealth and greater power. friends. that's the world we live in. I'm often amazed by Christians who are surprised by sin. And friends, we shouldn't be surprised by the sin this world has. It is not quite surprising. But Paul says that we were once held captive by this world. We wanted to be all that this world wanted us to be. We wanted to embrace all that this world offered for us. But more than that, we see here, secondly, that we were not only a prisoner held captive by the world, but we were a prisoner held captive of the devil. Friend before Jesus, you were a follower of Satan. That's what the Bible says. Look again at verse 2. He says that we were a follower of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul here is, is referring to the devil, the prince of the power of the air. This is Jesus will often use this language. This is Old Testament language pointing to, to the devil. And before Christ rescued us, we wanted to follow Satan. We were Satan followers, plain and simple. Jesus says that Satan was your daddy. And you wanted to do whatever you could do to please him. At the end of the day, this is what the Bible says. Now, this doesn't mean, again, that we acted in the most rebellious ways we could have acted. But one single act of rebellion is a reflection of who we are as a follower of Satan. Paul will use this same illustration or uh, point in in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, act like God's children. Be holy as he is holy. What we were before Christ was we were acting just like our father, Satan. Uh, We wanted to be like God just as Satan wanted to dethrone the Almighty This is expressed in our sinful behavior when we want to live life our own way rather than God's way. This, for example, is what Paul argued in Romans 1 when he wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their mind, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friend, this is the measured result of our willful rebellion against God, expressed in following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were sons, sons of disobedience, sons and daughters of disobedience. Our lives were characterized by rebellion. But not only were we held captain by the devil, we see here also in verse 3 that we were a prisoner of our own flesh. We were not only under the sway of these external forces, but we had a problem going on in our own hearts. Notice what he says in verse 3 that among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul, again, is making these sort of sweeping universal statements here. All. We were all once under The passions of the flesh. Some may claim today that the devil made me do it. But that's not biblical. The Bible says you made you do it. We sin because we want to. Because we love it. Jesus says that men love the darkness more than the light. Because their deeds are evil. Because our hearts are evil. We want to do evil things. And brothers and sisters, that is so much as true of me as it is of you. Our sin nature was so pervasive that it took over. That we wanted to do every bit of sin that we did. We feasted on the meals of our flesh. And everyone that it cooked up. Our flesh, Paul says, is corrupt. It is broken and it is bent on sin. In Galatians 5, Paul will give sort of, a, sort of a full treatment of the flesh. In the context of the passage, everybody knows about the fruit of the spirit. Before we get to the fruit of the spirit, we get to the fruit of the flesh. and Paul will say this, but, but I say walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Oh, okay. So we, you can see them. Well, how can you see the works of the flesh? Well, they come out in these ways, Paul says, spiritual immorality or se- sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not, will not, no, not, never inherit the kingdom of God. That litany of moral brokenness is what Paul says here is what was driving us. And so as Jesus makes clear to the Pharisees, the problem is not outside the body, but inside the heart. Our hearts are broken. They are corrupt. We need, therefore, new hearts, new desires. So the Christian gospel is not... A behavioral modification system whereby through doing good deeds we become more righteous. Rather, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is is a righteousness that is given to us that is not our own. The righteousness of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. We believe that God Gave it to us. Friend, this morning, if you're not a Christian, this is what the Bible says you are. This is how you live. You might think you're in control of your life. You might think you're a free-willed person. Oh, the Bible is so clear. Our wills are not free. And I may not know you this morning but the Bible knows you and it knows you really well. You are held captive by these three prisoners. They keep you from knowing God. They keep you held captive, feeding you along, telling you the lie that sin will bring joy and happiness, but instead delivers you to misery and pain. The only turning from the only way you can turn from your sin and and be freed from them is, is through Jesus by crying out to Him and asking Him to save you from yourself. At the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only being saved from God's wrath, but being freed from ourselves from the tremendous mess of a life we've made, brothers and sisters. These were evil taskmasters. Why? Why would you return to them again? And I know I use this illustration often, but it is so helpful. You'll be reminded when the Israelites were freed from slavery and headed out of town that they had a problem. They had a rear view mirror problem. And their rear view mirror was like one of those mirrors at those funny houses where it distorts things. Made things look the way they really weren't. And when they looked in the rear view mirror of their life, they said, wow, things were really good back there. And sometimes in our lives, we do the same thing. We look in the rearview mirror of life and we say, you know, man, it was good. Life was good. Fool, life was not good. You were a slave, a prisoner to this world, a, a prisoner to the devil, a prisoner to your own evil flesh. Brother, sister, if God delivered you, why would you go back? And more to the point, if he is able to deliver you from them, how much more is he able to deliver you today? There is no sin too great, no problem too difficult that God is not able to deliver you. Brother, sister, you might be one that ignores your past. The Bible doesn't ignore our past, it's honest clear and it's decisive we were dead in our trespasses and sins how do you whitewash your past what fond memories do you have of your past but maybe this morning you're dominated by your past your mind is filled often with your past What do you dread most about your past? Does it cause you to weep? Friend, remember this morning that you have been set free from that past. It is no longer who you are. It is what you were. It is not who you are today. You have been forgiven of all of your trespasses and sins. All means all. Live in the joy that that is of salvation, not dwelling and being dominated, dominated by the past. Well, let's look briefly at this final point, and it will be brief. Remember, you were once an object of God's wrath. Paul says here in verse 3 that we were doomed to destruction. That... That we were on a a fast train, right, to hell. We were following something, and that that following was leading to a destination point, right? If you're following somebody in the car, right, you're going somewhere. There's a reason you're following, because you're trying to get to the destination. Well, friend, when we were following the world, when we were following the devil, when we were following our flesh, it had a destination in mind. And it was an eternal hell apart from God. Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only was it our nature to sin, but our actions resulted in wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath, right? That's Paul's idea here. Notice here the parallel between sons of disobedience and children of wrath. We were not children of grace, not children of the Father. We were children of wrath. Because of our sin, we were under God's just judgment of sin. Our sin deserves God's judgment. And some may think this morning, well, my goodness, I, you know, you've said I'm not as bad as I could be. And I've not done anything you know, really uh, salacious or heinous. Why would such sin deserve an eternal punishment like hell? That just seems kind of like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Friends, you misunderstand something so clear. That God is holy. That God must punish all sin. And that one sin against an infinitely holy and good God is enough to indict us For all of eternity, we cannot get away with any sin. And frankly, God would cease to be God if he didn't deal with it. Honestly, I think it would be quite pitiful to worship a God who can't deal with sin. No, our God does deal with sin. As the author of Hebrews remind us, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brothers and sisters, this was us. And trust me. That whatever vision you have for hell. It is a million times worse than your darkest vision. But there is hope today, right? Because Paul doesn't stop with this bad news in verse 3. Now, verse 4 is coming, right? That though we are doomed to destruction, a but is inserted into the equation in verse 4. But God. That while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. Despite our sin, God worked. And this morning, you can be delivered from this bad news with this tremendously good news that God has worked salvation through Jesus Christ. And that by turning from your sin and trust in him, you will be saved. Brother, sister, let us remind ourselves that our destiny was doomed to destruction. Our lives were hell-bent on rebelling against a good and gracious God until he acted to save us. If you've done any cooking in your life, particularly if you've ever you know, made something with chocolate, or if you've ever cooked caramel before, in all of these recipes, uh, there is usually a common ingredient. It's a striking ingredient. You wouldn't think that it fits in this particularly recipe, but in most recipes that have something tremendously sweet comes something tremendously sour. Usually, in most of these recipes, uh, there's a, a small amount of salt that's added to them. Why? Well, because that salt, as it enters the palate, will awaken your taste buds so that you can truly experience The sweetness of the chocolate or the caramel. The salt acts as an agent on our tongues to, to give us expression and vibrancy to the depth of flavor we hope to experience. And Paul here gives us salt. He gives us salt so that we can truly savor the sweetness of salvation through Christ our Savior. His bad news serves to display God's power to save sinners like you and I. And before Christ saved us, we must remember we were nothing but rotting corpses, dead in our sin. That we were doomed to destruction because we were following this world, the devil, in our flesh. But thanks be to God, this is who we are once were you were means you aren't anymore by grace you have been saved and raised with Jesus from the dead brother sister have joy this morning in that truth let's pray Father, we trust this morning that your word has given us clarity on who we are, sinners in need of a Savior, that we were once your enemy, but that now we've been welcomed to your table. We trust we are undeserving of your grace. And mercy and love. Remind us afresh today of who we once were. That we might enjoy the salvation we now have through Christ our Lord. It is for your glory and our eternal good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.